0: Good morning, church. Last week, we wrapped up Matthew chapter 10, Jesus' second discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. The focus of that shorter discourse, the second discourse after the Sermon on the Mount, remember, the, the focus of this shorter discourse was Jesus delegating his authority to his 12 apostles to preach the good news and to heal. But he also warned them, that they would face opposition and persecution. But there was only one reason for that. There's only one reason they would face any opposition or any persecution. Jesus. Jesus is the dividing line. There are those who reject Jesus and those who receive him. And he even said that he didn't come to earth to bring peace, but a sword a sword that divides the earth between those who believe he is the Son of God and those who don't. But sometimes, those who decide to receive Jesus as the Messiah, who call him Lord and dedicate their lives to him, deal with serious doubt in their decision. Just because someone decides to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean it will be easy or that they'll never have any doubts, which is exactly what we see happen in our text today. So let's stand and read Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. Again, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went down from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came, eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we are eager for your word this morning. We're eager to be fed by your word. We pray that you would give us understanding now. We know that we have no understanding of your word apart from your spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move in us now to clearly perceive your word and understand it and apply it. Mold us and shape us by your word, Lord. Mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us if the disciples ever actually leave to go on their mission. And he doesn't tell us if they ever get back from their mission and report to Jesus, but Mark and Luke do. Luke 9, 10 says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So we're just supposed to understand that they go and that they return. It's probably right to think then that Jesus is without his 12 disciples from Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 12, verse 1 says, when Jesus had finished, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So it seems like Jesus is alone. But the disciples are back with Jesus in chapter 12, verse 1. So Matthew wants us to understand that these verses, 2 through 30 especially of chapter 11, is no, they're no longer focusing on Jesus delegating authority to his apostles. The apostles are not in view anymore. The shift has focused to something else. Whether they are with Jesus or not in this chapter doesn't really matter. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus' focus returns to his preaching and teaching ministry. Preaching the kingdom of heaven and teaching the precepts of the kingdom of heaven, which we learned in Matthew 5-7. through Matthew tells us that Jesus did these two things in their cities which is an interesting detail to include. They aren't Jesus' cities anymore, even though he's from Galilee. Jesus is starting to distance, Matthew's starting to distance Jesus narratively from the region of Galilee, which will culminate in Jesus' pronouncement of judgment over these cities, starting in verse 20. But we'll leave that for next week. This week... Is all about John the Baptist. So three truths from Matthew 11, 1 through 19. Three propositional truths to believe by faith. First, Jesus is the Christ. While Jesus is doing his thing in Galilee, the narrative lens turns to John, who is imprisoned. And we'll learn in chapter 14 of Matthew that John was imprisoned by by Herod Antipas, because John denounced his marriage to Herod's wife, Herod's brother's wife. So Herod Antipas married his brother's wife. The last time we heard anything even remotely about John the Baptist was when some of his disciples approached him back in chapter 9, and there he was already in prison. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, all the way back to Matthew chapter 3. It was January when we went through this chapter originally. So I want to to reintroduce you to John for a moment from the Gospel of Matthew. Our text today is rooted in chapter 3. Notice a few things with me. Verse 2 tells us that John was preaching the exact same message that Jesus would later preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John and Jesus are united in the message of the kingdom. Then Matthew tells us exactly who John is. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John and Jesus have the same message. And Jesus and John were both prophesied about. John fulfills a particular role in the coming kingdom of heaven. But then Matthew starts to describe John. John looks and sounds much different than Jesus. He lived outside of the major population regions, verse 5. People had to go out to him in the wilderness, whereas Jesus went throughout all of their cities. He wore traditional clothes worn by a prophet that are supposed to stand out to us, as marking him as different. Camel hair as a garment and a leather belt. And he ate a very slim diet, of locusts and honey. And in that way, he was an ascetic hermit, which just means that he didn't really care for his body. In fact, he neglected his body for spiritual reasons. He lived out in the middle of nowhere. People had to come to see him. He dressed funny, and he ate funny things. But when John starts to speak, it's with a harsh bent. The first thing Matthew records John saying is, you brood of vipers to the Pharisees. So in John, we have a fiery prophetic figure who lived in the wilderness as a hermit. And notice how he speaks of Jesus, the one who will come after him in verses 11 through 12 in chapter 3. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. His expectation of Jesus is as the bringer of judgment. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire and burn up all the chaff. Which is, of course, true. Jesus will do that, but so far... Jesus' ministry has been marked more by statements of authority and mercy than by judgment. Chapters 8 and 9 see Jesus constantly healing people and caring for the poor and oppressed and reaching out to the lost. And now, John the Baptist is in prison. If Jesus is the bringer of divine judgment, if Jesus is the Davidic king that would reestablish the kingdom of Israel, in John's mind, then... Why is Jesus letting him stay in prison? Why isn't Jesus manifesting his kingdom right now? Why is he still preaching and teaching and healing? Shouldn't the revolution start soon? Shouldn't Jesus be separating the wheat from the chaff? Shouldn't he be clearing the threshing floor? The deeds that John is hearing about here in verse 2, back in chapter 11, aren't lining up with what he thought would happen On his timeline. So, if you are John the Baptist, how would you be feeling right now? Not very great. Locked in prison alone, unable to do what you are born to do, and unsure if Jesus really is the one you prepared the way for. And to John's credit, he doesn't let those doubts fester. Apparently, he could receive guests or get messages out of this prison, and he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In his mind, it's absolutely necessary for Jesus to address this question. Maybe maybe Jesus wasn't the only one coming. Maybe there would be another one to bring the judgment, and Jesus was bringing the mercy, or something like that. But look back to Jesus' response in verses 5 through 6. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus answers John's questions by pointing out two things. And then he reframes his expectations of who the coming king would be. He tells the disciples of John, to tell John first what they hear him say and what they see him do. Tell John what you hear me say and second, what you see me do. He wants them to evaluate his ministry through his teaching and mighty works. Jesus has displayed his authority both in his teaching and in his miracles. That was the focus of chapters 5 All the way through the end of chapter 9. And even chapter 10 where he delegates his authority. So John needs to be aware that Jesus has all authority from the Lord. But then Jesus reframes John's expectations by pointing to Old Testament prophecies. So listen to Isaiah 35 verses 5 through 6. Listen to this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is pulling right out of this verse to encourage John that he is doing the work of God. He healed the blind in chapter 9, verses 27 through 31. He healed the deaf and mute in chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. He healed the lame in chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And on top of these healings from Isaiah 35... Jesus adds two more amazing miracles only God can do. He cleansed lepers, meaning he can make things clean. And he raised the dead to life. These verses in Isaiah are about God coming to save his people. That's the context of Isaiah 35. God coming down to save his people. Listen to verse 4 which goes into the verses we just read. Verse 4 says this, Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, etc. Jesus is saying that the work he is doing is the work that God does. But then he says, And the poor have good news preached to them, which is a reference to Isaiah 61, verse 1. Isaiah 61, 1 is a description of the Messiah. Here's the whole verse. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't quote the whole verse. Just the very first part, he brings good news to the poor. Because be- before he binds up the brokenhearted, before he sets captives free and opens up the prisons, he must go to the cross. Those in literal prisons like John himself are not literally set free by Jesus in his first coming. Souls imprisoned by their sin are set free by the redeeming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus is retraining John's understanding here. He's teaching him that his first coming deals with the problem of sin and separation from God. And he ends his message to John with a beatitude. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Again, most likely that's a reference to the book of Isaiah. Speaking of God, it says... And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. So Jesus is warning John. He's warning him. He's saying, Trust me. Don't be tripped up by what you thought I would be. John is a prototype of the many who would find it hard to accept the way that Jesus was the Messiah. Many want to make Jesus something other than he is. John expected the bringer of judgment. Others wanted a revolutionary. Still others today expect Jesus to be like like a non-judgmental uncle or a tool to get what they want. Instead of wishing Jesus was one way or another, we need to love Jesus for who he is. For exactly how he revealed himself. Jesus is the son of God. The Christ. And as we'll see next week. He is both the bringer of judgment. And the one who offers an easy yoke. But Jesus is careful to show John. That he is fulfilling prophecies. Made about the Messiah. Even if they weren't the prophecies. John expected him to fulfill right now. Undoubtedly this information would have given John some peace in prison. We should all follow John's example here. When we aren't sure about something, when doubts arise in our hearts about the Lord, even though we love Jesus, we need to actively seek answers to those questions instead of suppressing them down. When we let doubts fester, when we let doubts fester, Satan can use them to bring the sin of unbelief. So instead of letting them fester, we need to seek God out in His Word. And we need to talk to knowledgeable Christians. And we need to read from trusted sources. And we need to spend serious time in prayer. So let it never be said of Lake Morton Community Church, that you were discouraged from seeking answers to hard questions. Amen? The first truth we learn from this text is this. It's very simple. Jesus is the Christ. Have no doubt about it. Even if he is the Christ in ways we wouldn't have expected, he is the Christ. Second, John is Elijah. In verse 7, we find out that there was a crowd hearing this discussion. The whole time. So as John's disciples head back to their teacher, Jesus turns to the crowds and he says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus lists two things that John is not before he affirms what he actually is. He is not a reed shaken by the wind. The people did not go out into the wilderness to see the shrubbery, even less did they go out to see a speaker who constantly changed his message for the crowd. And they did not go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing. John was not a man born in noble palaces. He wasn't some softy. He was a man dressed in the clothes of a prophet who spoke with a prophet's authority. He was austere, which is exactly Jesus's point. John was a prophet, and that's who the people went to see. But he was even more than a prophet, Jesus says. And then he quotes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John was the one who would prepare the way before the Messiah. He is more than a prophet because he was the direct herald of the coming king. It was John's privilege to introduce the world to Jesus. You want to hear an understatement? Jesus was a pretty smart guy. The crowds, after hearing John's questions, would have probably been perplexed. Is John the Baptist falling away from the movement? Does he not believe that Jesus is the Messiah anymore? So Jesus wants to remind the crowd of who John is. And all along, he's going to expand upon his role. Verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Don't make the mistake, Jesus says, of thinking that John is somehow less important now. In fact, Jesus says that John is the greatest man born of women. Of course, that simply means that John is the greatest human, which is quite a statement. If I asked you who the greatest human in the Bible was, besides Jesus, who would you say? Abraham? David? Moses? Jesus says John the Baptist is greater Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Hmm. Jesus, of course, is the one who inaugurates the kingdom of heaven, so he is automatically greater than John, and he he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. But you have some questions about that. Why isn't John considered in the kingdom? And what does it mean to be great or least in the kingdom? First, Jesus is making a historical statement here. He is defining eras. John is the last and greatest prophet that foretold of the kingdom of heaven in a long line. He is squarely in the category of those who came before the kingdom of heaven. Using Jesus' categories, we'll call that that one, that category, those born of women. That's what Jesus references it as. John is the greatest born of women, meaning he has the most honor. He gets to direct, directly tell the world about Jesus. But those in the kingdom of heaven, the other category, they get to enjoy the life of Christ, both in his incarnation, like his disciples, and in the life of the church, like you. We experience a greater privilege being in the kingdom than even John the Baptist who got to tell the world about Jesus. This side of the empty tomb is the privileged position to be in. Those who have the least honor in the kingdom of heaven, those who least deserve in their minds to be in the kingdom of heaven because of all of their horrible sins, are greater than John the Baptist. The point is, it's better to be in the kingdom than out of it. It's better to be in the kingdom now than out of it. Now, that doesn't mean that John or many of the Old Testament figures that we love and adore and look up to are eternally out of the kingdom. But they certainly didn't get to experience it on earth like you do. That's a blessing, and it should make us pause, and it should make us worship. We get to experience We get to experience the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven on earth, and not just experience it, but participate in it. We get to participate in the expansion of Jesus' kingdom. We are deeply blessed by that privilege, and we often forget it. Sometimes we might be tempted to think that John had it better because he got to see Jesus, spend some time with him, even. But that's not true. We have it better. Because we live on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. We get to live in a time when we're conscious of our reconciliation with God. What a blessing and a privilege. Amen? Verse 12 can come off a bit obscure for us. But remember, John is in prison. And the kingdom of heaven had been coming, had been proclaimed by John at the beginning of his ministry. So Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And that's the right way to translate this verse. Some translations, like the New Living, a wonderful translation, say the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, which is an, a very unusual way, an untypical way, to translate the Greek, Greek verb for suffered violence. It's usually... Like this. Really, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven has been under attack from violent men, which is true. The prime example of that violence is John himself, and that's why Jesus brings it up. He's been locked in prison, and soon he will be beheaded because of the truth. His example will become the typical experience of Christians for the next several hundred years. Jesus, of course, will also suffer violence at the hands of violent men throughout his ministry and in his death. And violent men are also trying to take control of his movement. In John 6, violent men try to crown Jesus king after he feeds the 5,000. And Jesus narrowly escapes. Once again, these violent men wanted a revolution against Rome, and they wanted Jesus at the head of that revolution. But that was a revolution he did not come to start. So he's telling the crowd to not be surprised Not be surprised by the violence the kingdom of heaven endures. From the time of John the Baptist until this day, today, the kingdom of heaven, the church, has suffered violence at the hands of violent men who either want to hijack it for their own use, making followers and a lot of money, or destroy it because it holds the truth and proclaims the truth. But this this verse, verse 12, is parenthetical. Jesus' overall point. He's telling the crowd not to be surprised by the violence that John has suffered. Many may have suffered doubt themselves, seeing John the Baptist in prison for so long. Jesus is saying, don't be surprised by that. That'll only continue. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus returns to the person of John as his subject. For all of the law and the prophets proph- prophesied until John And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So again, John is squarely in the category of prophets who foretold of the coming of Jesus. John, of course, will die before Jesus does. The prophets and the law prophesied until John. It's worth mentioning that prophets comes first here. Prophets and then the law. It's typically the other way around almost listed as the law and the prophets, almost always. And only here does Jesus list the prophets first before the law. He's drawing our attention to the fact that the whole word of God points to him. People may have assumed that only the prophets did, but even the law did too. He's in a long line. John is in a long line of spokespersons for God. As the pinnacle and last prophet John holds a privileged position, even over Moses. But now Jesus has come, and the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world. And John plays a central role in that. The book of Malachi is the very last book of our Old Testament for a reason. Christians have ordered these books this way, so that we can turn the page and go right into the New Testament, into the Gospel of Matthew Listen to the last couple verses of Malachi 4, the very last verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers and their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, and I will come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This was the root of John's expectation. But then we turn the page we're almost immediately introduced to John in Matthew 3. After a genealogy and the story of Jesus' birth, which is way shorter than Luke, the first main character on the scene after that is John the Baptist. And here Jesus confirms that John is the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5-6. John the Baptist was the Elijah prophesied about in Malachi 4. But there are two issues with this statement. First, John denies being Elijah in John chapter 1, verse 21. And second, he obviously isn't the same Elijah who is taken up into heaven without dying because we have an account of his birth in the book of Luke. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus doesn't mean that John is literally the Elijah of 1 Kings. Jesus is saying that John is a figurative yet real fulfillment of Malachi 4-5. That's right. Jesus wants us to understand Malachi 4:5 as non-literal and figurative. That's why he says, and if you're willing to accept it. Because he knew that people wouldn't accept it. They expected a more literalistic fulfillment of that prophecy. Listen again to verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a favorite expression of Jesus throughout the Gospels and even in the book of Revelation. He uses it when he knows people will have a hard time understanding what he's just said. We might even have a hard time ourselves accepting what Jesus has just said. After all, we are evangelicals. And we take the Bible Literally, as we should. It is the Word of God. But Jesus, God Himself, interprets Malachi 4 5 for us. He speaks authoritatively on what the Bible says and how to interpret it. This prophecy about Elijah is fulfilled figuratively. We need to keep a humble view of our interpretation, especially our interpretation of prophecy and what we can expect in the future. Of course, we need to know our Bibles, ideally front to back, and we we need to read them really well and often. And we'll need to make interpretive decisions along the way. But we do this humbly and in utter reliance upon the Spirit. Amen? Amen. I've mentioned here before that there are certain interpretive tools that we can use in order to help here. Here are three three interpretive tools. First, when we're reading the Bible, we interpret scripture referencing scripture. Second, we don't interpret scripture against scripture. And third, we use clear scripture to interpret unclear scripture. Again, First, we interpret Scripture referencing other Scripture. We don't take Scripture out of context. We read it with the whole Bible. Not just even the book that it's in or the chapter that it's in, but the whole Bible. How does the whole Bible talk about the topic we're reading? Second, we don't interpret Scripture against Scripture. We don't say, well, this says this here, this says that here, therefore this is a lie or not true or unoriginal or something like that. We don't interpret Scripture against Scripture. And we use clear scripture, third clear scripture, to interpret unclear scripture. For instance, our text today, when John says he is not Elijah, but Jesus says he is, how do we interpret that? We conclude that John is not literally Elijah from 1 Kings, but we do conclude that Jesus understands him to fulfill that prophecy in a metaphorical or figurative way. The Bible doesn't contradict itself We just fail to understand it. So when we read it, we come to it humbly, asking the Lord to give us wisdom, and we seek help in understanding from different sources. There have been over 2,000 years of Christian interpreters reading and writing this same Bible, reading about it and writing about it. So we have to seek out good thinkers, mature Christians, and use good Bible study aids And we take John's example, just as John sought help to understand, because this was an interpretive issue for him, just as John sought to understand, so should we. John is Elijah. John is Elijah in the sense that he is the greatest prophet and mouthpiece of God. A fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah, Malachi 4.5. He pronounces judgment and he calls people to repentance. He is, Malachi chapter 3, he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. When Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, he is encouraging us not just to listen, but to comprehend. And not just to comprehend, but to apply If John is Elijah, then Jesus is the Christ. And if Jesus is the Christ, we owe him our entire lives. And this is where Jesus goes next. Verses 16 through 19. Join in. If John is Elijah, then Jesus is the Christ. And if Jesus is the Christ, we've got to join in the kingdom. But that's not what people are doing. Jesus says... But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. John sang a dirge. He was a severe man who led a hard life. He wore the clothes of a prophet, and he ate a slim diet. But the religious elite thought he was crazy because of that. He has a demon, they said. Then Jesus comes along and he he turns water into wine and he eats when others fast. And Jesus heals the needy and by all accounts is full of joy in his teaching. But the religious elite accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard who keeps the wrong sort of company. Of course, neither of the accusations against John or against Jesus are true. They are excuses people use to sit out. And that's the point. The point worth emphasizing here is people will use whatever excuse they can to sit out of the kingdom of heaven. People don't want to join in on their own. Jesus accuses this generation, the same generation that would see him hang on a cross, But not much has changed. The kingdom of heaven has been advancing for 2,000 years and more people from around the world are Christians today than ever before. Praise the Lord. But the kingdom of heaven still suffers violence and there are those who still obstinately sit out of it, even though they know the truth. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you are sitting out of the game. Jesus wants you to join in. John and Jesus are both proved to be wise in the end. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. The kingdom of heaven truly is at hand now. Their message of repentance and acceptance of the kingdom are still relevant for you today. And your repentance is only possible on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And you today can be justified before God. Praise the Lord. Join in and believe by faith. Don't sit out any longer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to receive it today. We receive it by faith and we thank you for your goodness and your love. We pray that you would continually use this this week to remind us of what you've called us to. Lord, we need you now more than ever in our lives. We pray that we would constantly see the areas in our lives where we're turning away from you and repent of those things. Seek to know you for you as you've revealed yourself and not set our expectations upon you incorrectly. Lord, we worship you and we thank you because, Lord Jesus, you are the Christ, our only hope We pray that you would make that very obvious to us every day this week. In Jesus' name, amen.